0: This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Navigating the Christian life in a secular world will inevitably stir questions in the lives of thoughtful believers. In Ask Pastor John, Tony Reinke summarizes and organizes 10 years of the most insightful and popular episodes of the Ask Pastor John podcast, allowing readers to quickly and systematically access Piper's insights on hundreds of topics, including Bible reading, dating, social media, mental health, and more. Pick up a copy of Ask Pastor John wherever books are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, we bring you a breakout session led by Harold Kim on bittersweet sovereignty in Joseph's story and ours. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2018 West Coast Conference in Fullerton, California.
1: So let's go right into the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Genesis chapter 37, uh, verses 2 through 8. Let's begin there, and then I've just got a couple more verses after that. All right, Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 8. This is God's word. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, who is also Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then jumping down to verses 18 and 19, the context is that all of Joseph's brothers have been working out far away on the fields, Joseph has been pampered and left at home, and the dad, Israel or Jacob, sends Joseph to go find out what his brothers are doing. So we pick up at verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Okay, in the last, just three verses, it's actually the conclusion of the book of Genesis, chapter fifty. Verses 19 to 21, after many, many moons have passed, Joseph has risen into second in command over the kingdom of Egypt, like a vice regent or prime minister. All of his family members and his brothers come fleeing to Egypt because they have been literally starving to death because of a famine. And here is the part of reconciliation when his brothers recognize that their long lost brother, Joseph, is indeed a ruler of this kingdom. So, verses 19 to 21 of chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about, many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Okay, this is God's word so far. Um this, this book of Genesis uh, actually takes how many chapters to talk about creation? Chapters 1 and 2, and then chapter 3 brings about the complete devastation of the fall. So, two chapters on the creation of everything, the heavens and the earth, and all the plants and all the fields, and of course, man and woman, Adam and Eve made after the image of God. Two chapters. Some theologians would argue after the ruinous fall and then, of course, the flood, you have a story of what we call recreation. God starts all over again with the family of Noah. So you can say the whole creation of the world and starting all over took us right up until about Genesis 8 or 9. And again, depending upon what kind of theological background you're from, some people will say, well, the creation of the entire world is or the age of the universe is like 6,000 years old. Those are young, young creationists. You believe the, the universe is very young. Other people who think that Genesis is poetic, but very little about God has created everything, uh, will say it's not 6,000 years, it's at least billions of years or trillions of years, so on and so forth. I'm not here to stir a debate whatsoever. I'm just trying to make this point. Whether you believe in thousands of years or millions to billions or trillions of years, which is covered in the span of two chapters, And then talked about, again, within the first eight chapters, we slow down so much on the story of one man whose name is Joseph, the author spends 14 chapters just on this guy. Thousands of years, billions of years, but why do we slow down so much on the life story of Joseph? Is there a gospel that comes shining through according to the life story of Joseph, I do believe there is just tons of tons and riches of here, uh, here uh, so many insights. I'm obviously going to try to concentrate just with the time that we have. Just three angles or elements to the life story of Joseph that I think is not only personally has comforted and sustained and saved me over and over and over again, but also it has very much strengthened and saved my life in ministry, and I hope it does the same for you. Three elements from the life story of Joseph. First, the sins of the family. Second, the title of the seminar, bittersweet sovereignty. So sins, sovereignty. Third, last but not least, salvation. All right, real simple. So sins, sovereignty, salvation. I'm just going to point out three, three repetitive themes in Joseph's life. First, it is unmistakable that Joseph and his dad Jacob and all of his brothers suffered from the sin of favoritism. Favoritism, Jacob played favorites. Now, why was Jacob a dad like that? Why did he so almost unabashedly, foolishly, let all of his other sons know Joseph was his favorite? That's because Jacob. I'm not going to do a lot of psychoanalysis. He himself had a very poor, dysfunctional father. Jacob, as the scriptures record, was not loved. He was not loved. His father was Isaac. Isaac loved Esau, the hunter-gatherer, the male specimen, obviously hairier, maybe more sporty. He did not love Jacob. And so, with that kind of uh, what you might say, father wound, a father gap, from the day that you are born, where you are clearly disfavored, Jacob will turn around for the rest of his life and he will try to cling on to something or someone that will give him significance, worth, identity, and value. And so because Jacob was not properly, adequately loved by his father, Isaac, he one day finds this beautiful woman by the name of Rachel and he absolutely falls head head over heels for her. Because when he sees Rachel, he thinks, This is what I've been living for. She is going to make my life worth living. And he makes an arrangement with her uncle by the name of Laban, who's a trickster. And Laban has Jacob work for seven years. And on the wedding night, he does not give him Rachel. He gives him Leah, the other sister. That's kind of horrific. It's kind of a pretty cruel trick. And then the scriptures go go on to say that Jacob worked another seven years. (laughs) So he worked another seven years for the love of his life, Rachel. And do you know that the Bible, of course, understands romance and all the biochemistry of this way better than we do? It literally said in the book of Genesis that when Jacob worked for Rachel for the love of his life, quote, it said, it seemed like days. It seemed like days. So seven years went by just in a blink of an eye. So let's just go figure A young, young child, a young man who is never validated or noticed or proved and loved by his own dad, Isaac, grows up to become a young man and finds the love of his life, Rachel, ends up working 14 years for her. What do you think his life is going to be all about from that point? It's all about Rachel, the love of his life. This is important background as to how you and I can better understand That Jacob was not just such an atrocious, awful father. He's a normal father. He's a normal father. He favored Joseph because Joseph was the son of Rachel. He favored Joseph because he was the son of Rachel. Rachel, the one who made his life complete. And he started to play favorites. He started to play favorites. You know, sin is not just doing wrong things. Here at the Gospel Coalition, I'm sure that comes out in many different expressions of forms. Sin is not just committing obviously wrong things. Sin is turning good things into God things. Sin is turning good things into God things. I told you I've got two daughters. I love them both so much, but I love them differently. But imagine if every day I woke up with my first daughter, every morning I said, hi, beautiful, hi, beautiful, good morning, beautiful. You're so beautiful. You're so smart. You're so great. Then God forbid with my second daughter, every morning, she can hear me tell the first daughter, good morning, beautiful. But I go to the second daughter and say something like, good morning, budhead," Or good morning, less than the first. <laughs> can you imagine me doing that? We're going to get into the story, Jay. That's actually what he ends up doing. And I know all of our hearts are a little sensitive and feeling right now, how awful would that be? And. I feel so sad for your second daughter if anyone did that and I can't think about all the dysfunctions and all the kinds of things that she's going to have to go through for the rest of her life being called a abutted in instead of beautiful. Can I suggest something else to you? It might be scarier for the first daughter and the kind of dysfunction she will have to face for the rest of her life if all she heard from her parents in her entire life and never the reverse, "Hi, beautiful, high intelligent, you do everything right. Now, you know, this is a simple rule in parenting. If you make your children feel like they are the center of the world, you are in for a world of trouble. And Joseph was the spoiled, pampered, overloved child. See, there is such a thing as you can overlove. We understand that as parents, if you neglect, abandon, abuse, hurt, You love your child too little, sinful. But did you know you can love your child too much? Where a good thing or a good person becomes a God thing? And you begin to see some of the effects of that. You do begin to see the effects of that right here in the life story of Joseph. It actually said in this passage that Jacob gave his son Joseph a robe of many colors the Hebrew commentators would tell us, oh, it had kind of um, extended sleeves or very long-flowing sleeves, or the robe, yes, was very multicolored, maybe rainbow-colored, who knows, is very artistic. I'm not quite sure. But no other brother or son got that robe. And in my imagination, because I'm a child of the 80s, I grew up on fine, sophisticated entertainment, World Wrestling Federation, which is now WWE. <laughs> and if you watch some of these characters – It's not real, by the way. I'm here to tell you. Sorry to burst your bubble. It's not real. It's showmanship. It's entertainment. These guys will come in these long flowing robes that look like Lady Gaga's costumes. They got their nicknames on the back, like almost lights going off. And it's just incredibly, incredibly dazzling to the eyes. I always think, reading into the text, that Jacob loved Joseph so much, he gave him a robe that looks like that. And Joseph would be parading it around. He'd be wearing it all day. We ought to love our kids equally, but differently and wisely. Jacob did not do this. He loved Joseph too much. There's another tragic story where he loved Dinah too little. Jacob had a daughter. She was violated and abused in some of the worst kinds of ways. You have no mention about Jacob doing anything about that. And that, of course, trickles down where the brothers have to take that into their own hands. First, the pattern or the sin of favoritism. Here's second, sibling rivalry, sibling rivalry. Joseph is the 11th of 12 brothers. And we read in the first verse, what is he good at? What is he good at? Well, he's 17 years old. He's pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, da da da. And here's what he's good at. He brought a bad report of his brothers to his dad. That's what Joseph was good at. He was a tattletale. He was a teacher's pet. Why wouldn't he be? He's wearing the robe. He's clearly feeling confident. He can get away with anything he wants. He can do no wrong in his father's eyes. And so we begin the story that at the age of 17, that Joseph was the good kid always the good kid, and he tells bad things about his brothers to his dad. We only read, for the sake of time, the first dream that Joseph has. He actually has two dreams, and these are truly charismatic, God-inspired, God-revealed dreams. I mean, it literally was God gave him these dreams. So there was nothing wrong with the content of the dreams, but hear me close. When you're 17 years old, you don't communicate too good. I mean, God could give you a dream, a vision for your life, and it could actually change the whole world, which it would. But when you're 17, you know, it might come out just a little bit arrogant, like kind of showy, bragging. And so we just read the first dream is about sheaves bowing down to his. And then the second dream is about basically all the stars bowing down to himself. It's a clear picture. Not only his brothers, but his parents would one day come and bow before him. And so... This was sibling rivalry at its best. A bratty, ambitious, driven, good moral kid, and he brags about it openly. Rivalries, rivalries. So this is what's going on in Joseph's family. He was clearly favored, and then there was rampant sibling rivalry. (coughs) We have tons of rivalries, right? Tons of rivalries. Um, Political spectrum, of course. We have the right versus the left. We have Democrats versus Republicans. Um not going to talk too much about that beyond that, but it is maybe as polarizing and as vicious as we've seen in some recent history. Uh, we have sports rivalries, right? I love God, I love you. That's why I'm not watching a game. I'm here with you. There's sports rivalries. I, I lived on the East Coast for 10 years. It's East Coast versus West Coast. They're like rappers in conflict versus which one's better. This even gets into churches, doesn't it? It's like theological camp rivalries. At least as long as you're within scriptural, evangelical core beliefs, there's denominational rivalries. There's confessional rivalries. There are so many peripheral petty things that can get in the way that actually destroy our witness as Christians together. There's rivalries. And I don't think this is particularly a cultural thing, endemic to a certain culture. You're of a certain personality type. Or it's just a traditional thing you've been used to. Or America has just fallen into the worst of times only at this generation. No, it's been throughout the all of time for all of humanity because it's not just a biochemical cultural thing. It's a sinful thing. It's a sinful thing. Because again, when we make good things into God things, and if anything else but God replaces what He deserves, I can make anything into a God thing, and I can look down and criticize and divide and scoff against and dismiss anyone who does not have this God thing. Or I can continue to envy and lust after and get very angry and resentful if I don't get what I think is a God thing, and that person has a God thing, and I don't have it. That's rivalries, All right, Brothers, sisters, sons and daughters, cousins, uncles, aunts, co- you name it. You can be rivalrous about anything. At, at, our, at our church, um, people are civil enough and sophisticated enough because we're upper middle class, we're a very suburban church. In a suburban church, it is so obvious that people are trying to keep up with status, keep up with, oh, did you... Did you hear about so-and-so? I saw it on Facebook. I can't believe they went there for vacation. And they're talking about how much it would have cost, talking about what kind of resort they would stay at. They were talking about how much the planes would cost. They're just, and secretly in our hearts, oh, they wow, they can vacation like that. Or we talk about other people's marriages. We talk about other people's kids. Oh, they make more money. They get more recognized. They got that award. Oh, people just like this person more. People doubt and kind of spoil this kid, not me. And the rivalries go on and on and on and on. Here is what is a little bit eerie about the story of Joseph. I hope you caught it because I paused when I read it. Hebrew storytelling usually is very straightforward. It's very simple, but he said a word three times. And we only read the first like seven or eight verses. The word hate came up three times. Remember that? Because of favoritism and sibling rivalry, it says they, the brothers, hated him even more. Hated him even more. They hated him even more. Question Where do you think that kind of hatred comes from? How does it originate? I suggest to you it's from jealousy. It's from simple rivalry. It's envy. It's constant comparing and comparison and measuring your worth or status or what you have versus what everyone else has and doesn't have. And these brothers who were clearly exposed to the favoritism of their father felt envy and jealousy And it got out of control, it festered, it was never addressed or resolved, and it turned into murderous hate. Murderous hate. Back to the story. I'm going to read for us in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. So again, what are you doing, Jacob? How do you allow all your other brothers, all the other sons to go out and work? But Joseph is just safely at home. Verse 14, so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers, with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where? where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Then we picked up at verse 18 and 19. What did the brothers instinctively feel as soon as they see Joseph come from afar looking for them? Now their hatred has taken actual plans and they're conspiring to kill him. And this is just like Cain and Abel part two. So much of why you and I may not really like that person. Why you and I have an initial emotional, very hard reaction when that person's name comes up. Why you may avoid or diminish that person's reputation or character to other people. If you look under the hood, it might be envy and envy unresolved can become full-blown hate. This is what the brothers did. I want you to notice, though, however, when we just read these verses, I don't know who's dumb and who's dumber. The father not only kept his son, his favorite son, aside, but when he sent him out, we just read, what clothing was Joseph wearing? (laughs) He went out in those WWE robes. He went out parading with like Lady Gaga costume and feathers coming out of his shoulders. No wonder the brothers conspired to kill him. Not only because of a dysfunctional foolish father who makes good things into God things, but Joseph at his young tender age was very bratty, egocentric, ambitious, and didn't know any better. Two patterns of sin so far, favoritism, second, sibling rivalry. Here's a third, just last one. There's so many, but we've only got time for a third. The sin of cover-up, the sin of cover-up. Later on, what happens is that the brothers actually sell him off. Instead of actually killing him, taking his life, they sell off Joseph to a pack of travelers or, or traders going down to Midian or to the land of Egypt. Reuben... One of the oldest brothers returned and he saw that Joseph was not there. He was really grieved, but he did figure out that his youngest brother, younger brother Joseph had been sold for 20 pieces of silver. Now the brothers all had to concoct the plan to cover up their crime, to cover up their offense of actually betraying and literally selling off their brother. What they did is they took the coat, they slaughtered a goat, dipped the coat in the goat's blood, dragged that coat back. To their aging father, Israel or Jacob, whom they knew favored Joseph and would have his heart torn apart. Now, here's how brutal and sick this story gets. And I like it because it's so, there's so much realism here. The brothers, their hatred for Joseph was so great that it far outweighed watching the heartbreak of their dad. Their envy had become so murderous and so vicious, they would rather watch their dead fall apart, they would rather cover something, fake it, lie about it, than to come clean that he was not killed, he was sold. This is how great their hatred goes. And this is just like Adam and Eve who got fig leaves to cover themselves. They hid. They tried to hide because of the guilt and the shame of sin. We have an awful tendency to cover up things rather than come clean and confess and repent to them. Oh, but my dear friends this afternoon, I do want you to know you cannot outrun or you cannot escape scriptures. If you cover over crimes, you cover over sins, you're mounting more sin upon sin. If you lie, you got to lie some more. If you've gotten into trouble, you don't come clean with that. You mount more trouble upon trouble. It just escalates. And a lot of us do this. We do do this, especially in Asian Eastern cultures, which by the way, that's the culture we're speaking to here. In Asian Eastern cultures, so often I might say, kind of Asian American ministry 101, One of the greatest difficulties in trying to reach those of Eastern cultures and ministering to those in Eastern cultures is I will usually be the last person to find out when a problem is really that bad. I will only hear about it as a pastor when it's almost too late. So there could be a marital issue. There could be an addiction issue. There could be a suicide issue. There could be a depression issue. There could be a mental health issue. There could be a relational falling out issue. And it has absolutely wreaked havoc at our church. We'll never really get over it, but we do want to get better at it. It's become a part of us. And I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, in the life story of Joseph, nothing gets better as long as it's covered. Nothing improves here when people don't come clean. And that's what Jacob's family, his sons all did. So when they come back to Jacob, he's tore his clothes in verse 36. He weeps aloud. He goes through the whole mourning and grief demonstration but notice how the brothers would care less that their father is being ruined as long as they can get rid of Joseph. Before we get into sovereignty, I just want to make one note to differentiate. Later on, when these same brothers who backstab and betrayed, they did not have their brothers back. You see, that is what Joseph learned firsthand from his brothers. They betrayed him. They didn't have his back. Later, you might be confused, because it's 14 chapters, how elaborate and how long it takes for Joseph to reveal his true identity to his long-lost brothers. He actually purposefully tricks them. He doesn't show show them who he really is from the start. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because there's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Of course, this is for racial reconciliation as well. Forgiveness, Jesus calls us to forgive, not to hate from the heart and to pray for your enemy and to basically not hold that debt over someone. That's forgiveness. It's hard. It's hard. Reconciliation, however, is an absolute different extended process where even though you have forgiven someone, you don't want them inside your house. Like when we used to have babysitters, for my two precious daughters and I figured out that my babysitter did something inappropriate with my daughters. We caught it on our security video camera as a Christian brother or father or person to this babysitter, depending upon it, at least if it was not a crime, hopefully if it's a crime, I probably got to report it. I can forgive the babysitter, but I'm not going to hire the babysitter again anytime soon. I'm not reconciled with the babysitter until that babysitter has gone through real repentance and change of life. You know, you're not going to be best friends again. Like you're not going to be remarried after your divorced spouse. You're not going to go close to someone until you can forgive from the heart. Yes, but you cannot reconcile until you see a change of heart in the other person and here's what joseph had to see from his brothers and do you know the great test that sends joseph over the edge in which he is provoked he has to cry behind the scenes and he actually comes forward and reveals himself to all of his brothers do you know what sent him over the edge it's when he tests his brothers are you going to get your other brothers back he actually holds back their youngest Benjamin, also born of rachel and when joseph sees that his brothers who used to sell him out, who betrayed and backstabbed him, someone actually steps up and is willing to sacrifice himself for the life and the welfare of another. Joseph's heart breaks and they are reconciled. Oh, but these are sins of the family. I don't think they're unique to Joseph. (laughs) Favoritism rivalries, and a constant, constant covering up. But thank God, the story does not end here. There's another marvelous overarching theme that is revealed. And that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of Joseph's God. Whose sin, whose sin, whose sin is this? Whose sin was all this ginormous mess? It's not God. It's never God's. God does not tempt you. He does not rejoice in any of the evil doing. He does not even rejoice in the consequences that come from my sin. It's not God's. It's all of ours. It's because of our envy, our insecurity, our jealousy, dysfunctions passed down into us, which we turn around and do the same hatred pettiness bitterness to go and destroy one another it is all our fault it really is all our fault it's all of joseph's fault it's all of joseph's parents fault it's all of joseph's brother's fault but question even though it's all our fault is god sovereign enough that he can overrule it that somehow god can even use it sovereignty is always better played out backwards and forwards It's better read backwards. That's one of my seminary professors used to tell me. In different languages, especially in Hebrew or in Korean, you know, you actually, you do flip the pages of the scriptures backwards. But you want a better handle on the sovereignty of God in life? Please, please, my friend, don't ever try to read it from the present into the future. You'll never figure it out. But after some time, if you're able to trace it back through the lens of God, you go backwards. Sovereignty can be better discerned then. Sovereignty literally comes from two words: supra-reign. Supra-reign. What that means is: listen, the mess is mine, the fault is mine, the lying is mine, the deceit is mine, the envy is mine. I grew up in an absolute messed-up family. That's all mine. But God is still working and reigning at all times. All times. In all conditions all cultures all situations romans chapter eight twenty eight promises us god causes or works together all things to those who are called according to his purpose and to those who love him this does not mean that god only gives you good things but it does say god causes and work together even atrocious bad things fallen things to work together for your good God is doing this in explicit ways or subtle ways, up front or behind the scenes. For instance, this afternoon, these are guaranteed, these are little factoids about yourself. I gave you little factoids about myself, but here's some factoids about you. You did not determine your birth. Like none of you did. You did not determine the day you're born. You did not determine the color of your hair. You did not determine your race. You do not determine what culture and location in which you'd be born. You are actually not even going to determine the days of your life. You don't determine the day of your death. You don't determine the opportunities that will come your way. For the love of God, often we pray, God, I wish I could determine to get away from those failures and rejections and closed doors. No, we we want the other thing, but God actually determines a lot of that. And on the one hand, your life and my life is not random, aimless chance. Like, we're not just sitting here in the afternoon. This room is a little bit hot and the microphone is not working. Like, oh, what a random wasted moment. Christians never believe in that. Nothing is random and aimless. On the other hand, we're not fatalists. Fatalists believe God is so sovereign. That's why I like TGC. I like reformed things because that means even if I have a test tomorrow, I don't have to study. I can just pray, Lord God, God of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, God of Jesus who rose from the dead, just show up tomorrow. I'm going to study nothing. I'm just going to sleep and trust in you. Fatalism is a fatal attitude in which we believe our choices, our responsibilities and decisions and efforts don't matter at all. But what is Christian life? It's where even in the midst of devastation, heartaches, even when your own family members forsake you and hate you, those who have been closest to you have betrayed you. Those you gave your heart to broke it. Even when your own brothers try to kill off God's dreams and the dreamer himself, they can't, they can't. Listen close. God is so sovereign that in Joseph's brother's own attempts to kill off the dreamer, that actually is used to fulfill the dream. God is so sovereign. He's so super reigning, although the mess is mine. (laughs) In their attempt to kill off the dreamer, the bragger, it actually makes his dreams come true. John Newton Old commentator once observed, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. I don't know if you believe that. But it's absolutely true in the life story of Joseph. And it's true in your life if you're a follower or believer in Jesus Christ. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withdraws. And I'm talking down to the details. I'm not talking about generalities. We're down to the details. Joseph could not be killed. God would not allow him to be killed. He had to be taken. Uh, He had to be sold to travelers going to that particular location, not just some other random nation. Joseph had to be imprisoned under an officer by the name of Potiphar, whose wife was Crazy. Joseph had to be misaccused. Joseph had to interpret someone's dream perfectly, and the first guy forgot that Joseph interpreted his dream perfectly in prison. We're talking all the way down to the details that Joseph's God is that sovereign. And it's really, really easy to believe in God when things are going well. Hallelujah. Give all glory to God. Every good and perfect thing comes from Him. All the credit, all the honor belongs to Him. Very easy in healthier, happier, wealthier times. But can I ask you, my friend, this afternoon, if you have a hard time believing in God when things are hard, when things are falling apart, when things are failing, when things are actually breaking your heart, then I would suggest to you, if you have a hard time believing God then, I don't know if you have Joseph's God. I don't know if we're believing in the same God as Joseph did. Because Joseph, if he did not continue to believe and follow after God, his whole family would have died. A greater son called Jesus Christ would have never come. Because the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who went down into Egypt as a family of only about 60 people would have never been saved from famine and starvation during that famine unless Joseph continued to cling to and believe in and be faithful to an absolutely sovereign God. I have somewhat of a uh, younger church, probably average age is maybe early 30s. Uh, Um, and lots of weddings, lots of young kids. It's crazy. But look at this crowd, of course, it's more diverse in age and it's great, more diverse in backgrounds. And I just don't have to tell this audience, is there anybody here who has never faced evil? Like you've never suffered a loss? You know, I say that to younger folks cuz I just say you haven't lived long enough. Sorry to be such a downer. But if you just if you just live longer, Joseph's story is not abnormal. It's not atypical. Who here hasn't been lied about or stolen from or betrayed or taken advantage of or forgotten or marginalized, dismissed, thrown away, spat upon? ridiculed, not loved, never favored. You just feel all alone. Who here has never felt that? I want you to look deeper into the life story of Joseph. Do you know in his prime years from the age of about 13 to 30 is when he was locked up in prison? 13 to 30. And Joseph somehow continued to cling to and believe in the absolute sovereignty Of God. This young man's life has predominantly been spent being sinned against, harmed, violated. Evil has been continually been done to him. And yet, he doesn't get bitter. He does not give up. 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 He does not wallow in self-pity. He does not doubt to the point of absolutely giving up all faith and hope in God. He never curses God. He never takes it out on anybody else. He just doesn't give up. He won't stop believing in the sovereignty of God because somehow, somewhere, God allowed him to believe. God is so much bigger, so much better, so much better, so much more beautiful than all of the sins that have been heaped upon him. That's why we concluded the story of Joseph in chapter 50, verse 20. He actually told his brothers, hey, you know all the evil you did against me? You know all that mess? You know all that heartbreak? You meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about, many people should be kept alive as they are today. As they are today. God meant it for good for Joseph. By the way, he's no longer spoiled and bratty. He'll never brag again. (laughs) And literally his whole family can eat and they won't starve to death. Here's the third last thing. Sins, sovereignty, shorter, salvation. I think Joseph's life story is one of my favorites because I'm going to say it carefully. It demonstrates to you and me Do you know that the end meaning or conclusion to your life is not going to be based upon how many times you sinned? Do you know that the end evaluation or summary of your life and my life is not how many times have you sinned and how many times did other people sin against you? That is not going to sum up your life. Not if you're in Jesus Christ. Because what matters into eternity, and we find it from Joseph's story, It's not how many times you sinned or how many times other people sinned against you. It all, it all, all just boils down to who's gonna save you? Who is your savior? Because God loves, loves to actually not only rewrite stories, he's gonna rewrite a better story through your brokenness. It's through the weakness and heartache, let me say, you know, your greatest worry or your greatest weakness, you know, the thing that you've been struggling like the thorn in your flesh. If you just stay in ministry or church a little bit long enough, you're going to wake up one day and find out, you know, God, I never knew that my battle with a depression or anxiety or tragedy or trauma was going to be my greatest asset. Was actually going to become the greatest strength in ministry. And people are somehow going to be flocked and attracted and healed by that. Not my strength. But what God in His sovereignty did to save me and continue to save me in my weakness. Do you know how I know God always does this? Not only Joseph's story, but mine and yours. Because ultimately God Himself came in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who got rejected, forsaken, spat upon, thrown down and left for dead. There's a lot of parallels between Jesus and Joseph. 12 boys, 12 disciples, sold out for silver coins, sold out for gold. I think most glaringly similar is that just like Joseph was forsaken by his own people, the very brothers and chief priests and Jewish elders conspired the same in Matthew chapter 26 verse 4. Just as Joseph suffered, but continued to believe in silence, so did our savior. And the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God used evil deeds against His anointed chosen one and He used it to actually save the very people who killed Him. God uses evil deeds of the very brothers and enemies of Jesus Christ to actually come and save His people forever. Midlife is for real I'm in my mid-40s, on the tail end of the second half of mid-40s. People warn me about midlife, but it's like them warning you about what's it like to have kids. It doesn't matter what they tell you. Because when it hits, you're like, oh, this is way harder than I thought it was and better at the same time. It's the experience of it. It's just crazier than theory. Anne Lamont is, an, is a author up in NorCal, and she revealed this about her midlife about with midlife crisis. Here's what I've come to learn in my midlife crisis. Number one, everything falls apart. Number two, I keep trying to put it back together, trying to be my own savior. And then number three, the greatest difference between God and me is he never thinks he's me. The greatest difference between God and me is he never thinks he's me. In 2011, I had two pastor friends, one closer to me, another I knew just by, uh, as a colleague, by contact, but uh, within the span of three or four months in 2011, both pastors had to bury their wives at the age of 40 because of an illness. Uh, the first pastor, he said goodbye to his lovely wife because of scleroderma, which is an autoimmune disease. Um And she died around the age of 40. And the second pastor by the name of Daniel Chong said goodbye to his first wife, Maria. Spunky. Incredible girl uh, from Brazil. And at the eulogy, uh, he shared this, which I will never forget. He said, you know, in your early 30s, when you go visit a hospital as a married couple, uh, this is an exciting journey. You're just, you're hoping for good news. Hoping for good news. Uh, That... Life has been conceived and life could be born and by, by the miracle of God. But for Daniel and his wife, Maria, uh, every hospital visit was a dread. because She had stage four breast cancer. And every hospital visit was just anxiety filled and as draining as could be. Because so many of those visits was about remission. So many visits was just temporarily saying, oh, it's going to get a little better. But of course, ultimately, they knew they knew what the conclusion would be when you have stage four cancer. And on one particular day, Daniel shared how his very strong, (laughs) spunky wife just fell into his arms at home. And she just wailed. And she said, Daniel, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. There's no way God could love me to put me through this. So the pastor's wife, of course, being so honest and in touch with what she's been feeling, there is no way God could love me through this. And then Daniel shared just moments of silence passed. And he really does think that the spirit of God came down and fell upon his wife. And then she looked up, blinked, and said, no, but that can't be true. Jesus died for me. Now, that can't be true. Jesus gave up his life for me. And Daniel said, as a minister of the gospel, the word and sacrament, he's never heard the gospel better than that. Have you? Have you heard? Do you really believe? And can you cling to a gospel like that. It's the life story of Joseph. The theme of TGC this year is faithfulness, enduring faithfulness, getting all the way to the end. And I count myself as very much still on the newbie rookie side. I'm going through maybe midlife crisis, even as a minister, this is my second full-time pastorate, So I've been at it maybe, maybe now close to 16, 17 years. So I'm still kind of young and midlife, but man, I, I, I cannot... Tell you in how many different ways that without the actual functional, and I would include the feeling of God's sovereignty and comfort, I have no idea what else would get me to the end. How can we finish well? Mm. We come back upon the bedrock of Jesus Christ who was crushed for us, forsaken for us. This story is not about, oh, Don't you want to be a little more like Joseph? It's okay. Be like Joseph as much as you can. Joseph's never going to save you. Only Jesus got up from death. Only Jesus ascended to heaven's throne after his crucifixion and resurrection to proclaim and show he rules all of history down to the details, every person, everything, every seeming chance event for his own glory and for his children's good. And if you find Jesus, really, if you find Jesus, whether you get married or not, whether you were once married and you can't get married, whether you have kids or not, you can not have kids, whether you live well or not, if you find Jesus, your life is never plan B. You are never on plan B. Your God's dream come true. Jesus a sovereign savior who can even use evil and sin and crime and hurt. That's all mine. But he can overrule it and use it for good. This is what it means to become a Christian. You pray Jesus save me from my sin. I give up sovereignty, I give up reigning and controlling and running my life, I want you to do that, because you do it so much better, and you do it with so much more love. Your life or mine. Let me conclude with the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer number one, I don't know anyone who's ever put it better. Here's the question, here's the answer. We're done. What is your only comfort in life and in death? There's the question, there's the question. What would you say to other people? But you know what? Here's more important to you and to me. When you're going through the worst of times, what do you say to your own heart? What do you say to your own heart? At our church, we're going through a series of how do you find and follow Jesus in the midst of all kinds of feelings. We went through grief, anxiety, depression. We're going through everything. And one of the themes that I'm trying to teach and teach myself Do you know the most important influential preacher you'll ever listen to? Do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? I can't wait to hear Lincoln Duncan tomorrow. I love Stephen Um. There's a guy by the name of Tim Keller. He's not famous. So-and-so Piper. So-and-so Mr. Edwards. Wonderful. But do you know the most influential important preacher you'll ever listen to? It's you. It's you. It's you. The only question is, are you a good gospel preacher to your own heart? Because your heart is going to rage. You are going to listen to and talk so much nonsense and lies to your own heart for the rest of your life if you don't learn to put biblical gospel words and be able to get a hold of your heart and preach to your heart Apply it to your heart, rebuke your heart, comfort your heart, soften your heart, love on your heart the way that God wants to love you. So here's what we should say. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Thank you for the life story of Joseph. But thank you, God, for bringing the life story of Jesus. Sovereign, saving Jesus. Even amidst and through and over all the sin. Let me pray for us as we close. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches of your word. And we thank you for all the different ways that you come And you seek us out to touch us and teach us and change us and comfort us, rebuke us, correct us in ways that only you know about. And it's in the ways that we need most. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister here. Thank you for bringing them to the conference. We thank you that you're sovereign enough. You brought us all together to spend a little bit of time before you and by the power of your spirit, Lord Jesus, please take a hold of our wayward, tiring hearts. Heal it and soothe it. Resurrected it in union with Christ so that we might look upon the one who died to turn it around for our life and now he can rule and use it even all the evil, for our good and for your glory. Help us to not only believe these things, but to feel them and to share it. Share this gospel with many others in need. Hear us, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.